So good. All right, get all my things up here. Good morning, I'm Amy. It is a privilege to be with you all this morning and to be able to share the word. Before I dive in, as Shane mentioned, I have some books here today. One of the things that I do is I co-lead a ministry called The Devoted Collective. And we produce resources that help people grow in their faith walk and go deeper with the Lord. And I've got a couple of our resources here. One of them is my book, But I Flourish, which is my story of realizing that growth is possible in every season and also coming to understand what it actually means to grow and thrive and be fruitful as a believer. The new book that Shane mentioned is called Morning Musings, which I released with my co-leader of the Devoted Collective, Emily, and these are a hundred devotions to center your heart on Jesus. Each devotion has a key scripture and a declaration for you to make as you enter into your day. But the book that I would really love to highlight for you all is Prayers for a Generation. I am really passionate about interceding for the rising generations to walk in the fullness and the freedom that God has for them. And this book is a compilation of prayers. Some of them are my own, as I have parented my children and wrestled and interceded for their faith and their health, but it's also written by people all around the world bringing their prayers to the mix as well. And I wanna say whether you have children or not, we are all spiritual mothers and fathers in the family of God. And so we have the privilege and the responsibility of standing in the gap for those who are younger than us in faith and to intercede that they might walk in the fullness of what God has for them. So that's a little compilation book of 40 devotions and prayers with corresponding scriptures that you can then take and pray over the young people in your life. Shane, can I throw those ones at you now? All right. I'm gonna be honest, sales pitches make me really uncomfortable, but you won't know about these great things if I don't let you know about them. So guys, Mother's Day is in about two and a half weeks. There's some good things out there. We can help you tick off your shopping list. All right, I want to introduce you to our dog, Saint. Saint is a prophetic declaration over this young pup who's just turned one, and apparently that's teenage years in puppy life. Um, he doesn't always look this good, sometimes he looks more like shaggy dog, but this guy likes to escape. He looks for any opportunity to dart through our legs and get out the front door, and once he is free, there is no stopping him. He will not come when he is called. He will not be enticed anymore by treats. It doesn't matter what we dangle in front of him. He wants his freedom. The problem is he is unrestrained in his approach to freedom. He zoomies in and out of roads at a terrifying pace and he will not come. His freedom is reckless. It endangers his life, and it makes me go a little grayer every time it happens. And I wanted to share this story with you because as I've had to chase him down multiple times in the last couple of weeks, including last night in the rain, I've realized that we often have the same approach to freedom. 
We think freedom is synonymous with license, that I should be allowed to do what I want, when I want, how I want it, and any restraint on that is restrictive. But Paul says to us in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and chapter 10, he says, everything might be permissible for the believer, but not everything's beneficial. Everything might be permissible, but not everything is constructive. Everything, he says, might be permissible, but I refuse to be mastered by anything but Christ. Do you know what Paul is saying is actually true freedom does have restraint. True freedom exercises boundaries with wisdom because true freedom understands that there is a purpose greater than our own desires. God created you for freedom. He created you for wholeness, but freedom is not an end in and of itself. And we, if we want to steward our freedom well, if we want to walk in ever-increasing freedom and wholeness, then we need to understand the purpose behind it, and we need to learn to steward it with the right boundaries. Paul exhorts us in Galatians 5 verse 1, he says, it is for freedom that Christ has set you free. He doesn't then say, so go off and do whatever you want with that freedom. He says, no, stand firm. Guard that freedom and refuse to let anything burden you again with a yoke of slavery. When we believe the lie that freedom is license, we inevitably end up in bondage and chains, experiencing anything but true freedom. And today we are kicking off a series looking at old tales in the Old Testament. And I want to share some things with you that God has been challenging me about as I've spent the last few months deep diving into the book of Exodus. The book of Exodus is a book about rescue, a book about freedom. And I've always read it through that lens, focusing on what the Israelites were rescued from and what they were going to be delivered to. Delivered from slavery, destined for a promised land. But as I've been reading it this time, God has been highlighting for me the purpose of that freedom. What he intended them to use their newfound freedom for. So we're not going to camp in one passage today. We are going to kind of fly over the book of Exodus and we're going to look at some of the themes that come out about what freedom is all about and what they mean for us as new covenant believers. And as we read about the Israelite story, I want you to remember firstly, this is a real story. This happened. This was real suffering, real deliverance, real power on God's part. But it also paints a spiritual picture for us. We are Israel in bondage and sin. Egypt is our sin. It is our master. And without Jesus, our deliverer, we too will stay stuck in the suffering and hardship that Israel found herself in. So keep listening through those two lenses as we travel through Exodus. This really happened. These are real people that God intervened on behalf of, and he was foreshadowing the way he wanted to intervene in our own story. 
So Exodus chapter one starts where Genesis has left off. Genesis closes with Joseph and all his brothers in Egypt, ready to become the nation that God had prophesied they would. In Exodus one, within a first few verses, we travel from their death, the death of Joseph and his brothers, hundreds of years later, to find out what has happened. Israel has flourished. She has increased in number. She's become numerous. We're being told in these opening verses that God is faithful to his word. He had told Abraham that he would make him a father of nations, that his descendants would be so numerous, like the sand, like the stars, that you couldn't count them. And so as we read in chapter one that the Israelites were fruitful and multiplied greatly and became exceedingly numerous so that the land was filled with them, we're being reminded of that promise, but we're also being reminded of God's original design and intention for humanity. In Genesis 1, 28, when God made mankind, he blessed them and he said what? Be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth. So there's echoes of Genesis here and we are being told God's intention is being fulfilled. What God says can be relied upon. But when God blessed them to be fruitful, he also said, be fruitful, fill the land and subdue it. Rule, have authority. And this is where the problem begins in Exodus. Because the Israelites are not ruling they are not subduing, they are being subdued. In verses 11 to 13, this is what we read Egypt decided to do to the Israelites. They put slave masters over them to oppress them with forced labor, and they built Pithom and Ramses as storehouses for Pharaoh. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and spread. So the Egyptians came to dread the Israelites, and they worked them ruthlessly. They made their lives bitter with hard labor and brick and mortar and with all kinds of labor in the fields. In all their hard labor, the Egyptians used them ruthlessly. Can you hear that repetition? Hard, ruthlessly, over and over. Why? Moses wants you to know that this was no picnic, that they were mistreated, that they were abused, that they were in slavery, and there was nothing nice about it. So this is where we meet Israel. In bondage, Egypt, Pharaoh is her master. But God has not abandoned them. He is going to be faithful to what he promised Abraham. He had told Abraham, your descendants not only will multiply, but they will go into slavery and they will be mistreated and I will rescue them. And so in chapter three, we meet God encountering Moses and commissioning Moses to be part of bringing freedom to the Israelite people. God reveals himself in a particularly spectacular way in a burning bush that while it's on fire is not being destroyed. And so Moses approaches this bush, curious, wanting to know more. And this is what God says to him. He says, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt and I have heard them crying out because of their slave drivers. And I am concerned about their suffering. Some translations will say, I have compassion for their suffering. So I have come down 
to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land into a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey. God sees, God hears, God has concern, God has compassion for the suffering of his people and that is still true today. And he promised then that he would come down, that he would be physically present and he would deliver his people. He wasn't just gonna bring them out of slavery and drop them somewhere. He had a plan of where he wanted to take them to and it was a good land. And I'm so encouraged as I read this because we know that God has come down again in the person of Jesus Christ to rescue us from our own slavery and our own bondage. And he, again, has somewhere that he wants to take us, a journey that he wants to take us on. And the confidence that we can have is no matter how hard the path is, the land that he is leading us to is good because he is a good God who sees, who hears, who has concern and comes down and enters into our suffering with us and makes a way out. But how do we get to this good land? Aside from receiving Jesus, once we've come out of Egypt, once we've come out of slavery to sin, how is it that we steward the freedom that we have? Seven times God makes a statement as he negotiates with Pharaoh for the freedom of his people. In Exodus 7, 16, we read this. The Lord, the God of the Hebrews, has sent me to say to you, let my people go so that they may worship me in the desert. Let my people go so that they may worship me in the desert. I want to suggest to you this morning that the purpose of our freedom in Christ is worship. Worship is what is going to help us to steward this new life that we have been entrusted with well. If you were to look worship up in the dictionary, you might find something like it's a strong feeling of respect or admiration. It's to regard a deity with great or extravagant respect, honor, or devotion, to engage in an act of worship. And you might think, Isn't that a bit egotistical of God to want me free so that I can worship him, to want me free so that I can adore him? But God doesn't give worship as the purpose of our freedom to inflate his ego or to satisfy some kind of insecurity. He says that for our own benefit because he knows that it is in worship that we will recover our original design to be made in the image of God, to be fruitful in our lives and to walk in authority. How many of you came in this morning and you were burdened with things, you were confused about things and as you took your perspective off yourself, and began to worship God, to celebrate what he's already done, to declare the truth of who he is, to ask for him to be present with you. He already is, by the way. How many of you felt that shift? You got perspective. You had a new way of looking at things in the light of who God is. And that is the power of worship. It transforms us from the inside out and brings true and lasting freedom. 
There's so much that I could share with you this morning that Exodus teaches us about worship and stewarding our freedom well, but because you all know that I struggle to keep to time, I'm going to restrain myself to three things. And the first thing that I want to tell you that worship reveals is it reveals where our allegiance lies. What we worship has our allegiance. The Hebrew word for worship means something quite different to what we might first think. It's the word avad, and it means to work, to serve, to labor for. And we have this people who are working and laboring for Pharaoh. He is their master. And what God is saying is, come out of Egypt that you might serve me, that I might be your master. Now, this might not sound like freedom to us. It might sound like we are exchanging one master for another. But as we're going to discover, God is not like Pharaoh. He does not work us ruthlessly. He does not view us as a commodity. He is not out there for our destruction. He is there to lead us into abundant life. And we see the Israelites as they journey into freedom, wrestling with who will they serve. Because here's the thing, when they were in Egypt, they had no choice. They had to serve Pharaoh. There was no freedom to do otherwise. But God miraculously delivers them through signs and wonders. We call them the 10 plagues, but they were considered miraculous signs of God's power, demonstrating his authority over the Egyptians' God, saying, I am the one true God. And through the Passover lamb, Pharaoh finally agrees the death of the firstborn to let God's people go. And as they come out of Egypt and into the desert, they're faced with a choice. They now get to decide who they will serve. And we see them, yes, Lord, we'll do what you say. No, take us back to Egypt. It was better there. Yes, Lord, we'll do what you say. No, Lord, take us back to Egypt. It was better there. And we see this tug of war. And it's the same tug of war that we often enter into. But here's the thing, if you are in Christ, you now have the freedom and the power to choose whom you will serve. Sin, no matter how enticing it looks, will rule you like Pharaoh. It will work you ruthlessly. It will have no compassion on you. And if you have not accepted Jesus, then scripture is clear that you are under the rule of sin and the price of sin is death. It will work you until you die. But God says, come, lay your life down that you might find life. When you receive Jesus, you are justified. That's a fancy legal word that says not guilty is stamped across your life, and sin no longer has the power to judge you, no longer has the power to condemn you. It cannot sentence you to death. You are free from its power. But make no mistake, there is still a battle for our allegiance. 
And each and every day, you and I face choices. Whom will we serve? How will we use our freedom? Will we use it to serve the Lord, to worship the Lord? Or will we find ourselves tangled back up in bondage and sin? It's not an issue of losing your salvation. It's an issue of how you will steward the gift of freedom that you have been given. Paul says in Romans 6, sin is no longer our master because we live under the freedom of God's grace. But the freedom of that grace is we get to choose. And we now have the power to choose. And by the grace of God, we are given the gift of Holy Spirit, who Paul says in Romans 8, the same spirit that raised Christ from the dead now dwells in us, giving life to our body, giving us the ability to keep choosing God, to keep giving him our allegiance. But to live in the freedom of this grace requires sacrifice. Moses understood this. He said to Moses, to Pharaoh, when he's bartering with him, he says, you've got to let us go so we can take a three-day journey into the desert and offer sacrifices to our God. Sacrifice is an integral part of our worship. But the difference now is that lambs and goats and calves are not the sacrifice. We are. Our act of worship is to offer our lives back to God. Romans 12, verses 1 to 2, says, Therefore I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. It is a sacrifice at times to choose allegiance to God over allegiance to the world over allegiance to our own desires, over allegiance to the temptations and addictions of sin. But God says, if you will lose your life, you will find it. It's the paradox of the kingdom. We live in a time where we're told, your truth, your freedom, do what you want with no regard and no restraint. But God says, no, come, be a living sacrifice, choose service to me, and in doing so, I will renew your mind and you will know my good, pleasing, and perfect will. And this is the gift that as we choose the life of sacrifice and service, as we make our allegiance to God alone, we begin to walk in the good and the pleasing and the perfect his will begins to shape our days and shape our lives. And this is the beauty that what we worship shapes our identity. I don't have to tell you that what you spend time beholding, what you devote your energy to will shape you. 
I've watched it with my kids when they've watched too much American TV. They start talking in this weird accent. And my son, he, when he was little, he watched far too much Paw Patrol. And he was like, where's the buoy, mum? I'm like, what the heck is a buoy? A boy. But he's watching too much American TV and it's shaping him. And this is the thing, what we give our attention to, what we give our devotion to, shapes us. And when we choose to worship God and put him first, we begin that process, that lifelong process, empowered by Holy Spirit, of being conformed to the image of Christ. I want to take you back to the very first time that God says, let my people go in Exodus. It actually happens in Exodus 4, And he doesn't say, let my people go. He says this, Then say to Pharaoh, this is what the Lord says, Israel is my firstborn son, and I told you, let my son go, so he may worship you. You are not a commodity to God, as I said. He does not ask you to come and serve him so that he can work you ruthlessly like Pharaoh, like sin. He says, come as my son, come as my child and take your rightful place in the family of God. But don't just come as any son, come as the firstborn son. Birth order doesn't matter too much these days. It might give you some tendencies. I tick all the stereotypical first child. Hasn't happened with my own children. It's the middle child who behaves like the older child. But other than that, it really has no relevance in our culture. But in Moses' day, the firstborn son was a position of incredible privilege, but also incredible responsibility. The firstborn son got the double portion of the inheritance. They got more than everybody else. And they got the father's blessing. But they also got the responsibility of caring for the family after the father had passed away. It was more than a title. It was about power and authority and who got to be in charge, who got to continue the family line and represent the father. There were three ways that you could become the firstborn. You could be born into it, you could take it for yourself, or you could be elevated into the position by God. All of humanity was meant to be the firstborn because we're told that mankind was made in the image of God. That was our destiny to reflect and image God. But sin marred that in us. And what you see as you travel through the story of Scripture is God elevating, God choosing firstborn sons to reclaim that birthright of imaging the Father of continuing his line, of receiving his blessing and walking in his authority. And you know what? He always chooses the least likely. Here in the Exodus narrative, he chooses Moses to lead the people. Moses is not the firstborn. Aaron, who if you read the book of Exodus, is his sidekick, so to speak. He's the eldest son. Moses is his younger brother, and Moses constantly says, I don't have the ability, I'm not worthy, I don't have a good way of speaking, don't give me this task. 
And God keeps saying, no, I see something in you, Moses. I have commissioned you. I have appointed you. Even the selection of Israel. Israel is the subjected nation. Egypt is the glorious, powerful, wealthy nation. But God chooses Israel. And I don't know about you, but I find so much encouragement in this. Because here's the thing. Hebrews chapter 12 makes it clear that you and I are also firstborn sons now. It says that we are the church of the firstborn or the assembly of the firstborn children of God. That is our identity. We are the eldest sons. We have the double portion of the Father's blessing. We have everything that we need in Christ, Ephesians says, in heavenly places to live out the calling, to live out the life that we have been entrusted with. But we also have a responsibility to image the Father to a watching world. That is part of the purpose of our freedom. And this is the thing, true freedom will take you far beyond your own life. It will invite you to be part of something bigger. We are invited to be the firstborn, and I don't know about you, but so often I do not feel worthy of that privilege and that responsibility. But Paul encourages us in 1 Corinthians that God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. He chose the lowly things of this world, the despised things and the things that are not, to nullify the things that are. Your weakness, your past, your mess, whether it be yesterday, today, or even tomorrow, does not disqualify you from being the firstborn. Because in Christ, you have become a chosen, beloved child of God. And what you worship will not only shape your identity, how you see yourself and how you see the responsibility to steward your freedom, it will define your calling. My kids are constantly asking me, Mum, what do you think I'm going to do when I grow up? And honestly, I don't know. <laughs> Half the time I'm still trying to figure out what I'm going to do with my life when I grow up. But there's this question in all of us. What am I meant to do? What is my purpose? What am I called to do? We all have this desire for significance and to live a meaningful life. And I want to say to you that we all have the same calling in Christ. We will outwork it differently, but we all have the same calling. And as the Israelites have journeyed through the wilderness to Mount Sinai, God is about to unpack to them what it looks like, the laws that will govern their freedom, the laws that will help them image God to a watching world. He also reveals to them their new purpose, their new vocation, and he says this in Exodus 19, verse 4. You yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt and how I carried you on eagles' wings and I brought you to myself. See the desire of God there? He doesn't want you to come and serve him so that he can work you hard. He wants to bring you as a loving father to himself.
And he says, now if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all nations, you will be my treasured possession. And although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Do you know what Israel's new vocation became? To be priests. Sadly, they would reject that call and God would have to raise up a line of priests within them. But priests ministered to God and ministered to the people. And this is the beautiful thing about this new calling that we each have is whether we are stay-at-home mums, whether we are on a pulpit, whether we're a CEO, a nurse, a student, an accountant, we get to minister to God through our work and serve the people around us and image Him to them. Because this call to be a royal priesthood was not just given to Israel. In 1 Peter 2, we read this, but you, you believers, are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are a people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. You and I are called to be priests. We're called to minister and worship to the Lord, to offer him a living sacrifice, to bring before him our prayers and our intercessions, and to go out and serve the world. And if you were to read the book of Exodus time and time again, God says to the people, tell the next generation what I've done. Tell them what you've seen. Tell them what I've done for you. And this is our commission to declare the praises, to testify to the one who called us out of darkness and into the light. When God instituted the Passover, he said, I kept vigil for your freedom. Now keep the Passover in vigil for the future generations. Throughout scripture, to keep vigil, to keep watch, is to pray and to intercede. Our freedom is not just for our own gain. We're to bring other captives into the light. We're to go out and we're to break the chains that bind them and bring them into the family and freedom of God. But friends, we can't do that if we are not free. Moses knew freedom before he led the Israelites into freedom. And we have to know the freedom of God to be able to do what we have been commissioned and charged to do. And it starts today by choosing our allegiance, by choosing whom we will serve, not just this morning, but each and every day. And you know, I, as I've been praying through this message this week, I believe there are people that God wants to set free for the first time but I also believe there are believers that God is inviting into a new level of freedom. My personal testimony does not have a before and after. I have loved Jesus for as long as I can remember. He has always been so real to me and I am incredibly grateful for that. 
But I loved Jesus as my friend and I didn't really think I needed him as my savior. Because he was so real to me, I never really rebelled. And so I didn't really feel like he needed to die for me because I'm just being really honest, I thought I was so good. (laughs) Tick all the good little Christian girl boxes. You know what, it took my mid-twenties for me to really come face to face with my own inner brokenness. And to see what kept me captive might not have been visible to the watching world, but it was a chain nonetheless of pride, of self-sufficiency. For some of you, what keeps you in bondage today will be really obvious. And for some of you, more invisible heart postures have taken your allegiance and taken your focus off God and put them back on yourself and your own desires and your own ability. We're gonna stand. If you wanna stand now. And I wanna pray for us this morning. And some of you are gonna raise your hand because you wanna say yes to Jesus for the first time. And some of us may raise our hand because we're actually saying, Jesus, I want you back in the first place. I wanna commit today to wholeheartedly give you my allegiance so that I can enter the promised land. The Israelites spent 40 years going around the mountain. You don't have to do that today, friend. But you can't have a foot in both camps. Israelites had to come out of Egypt to be able to serve the Lord. And we have to be willing to come out of sin to name it for what it is, less than what God intended us for, to repent, to change our mind, to change our thinking for the better is the meaning of the original word. And to recognize God's will is good and pleasing and perfect. I've alluded to this verse, but I wanna read it in its full as we close. Jesus says this in Matthew 10, 39. If you cling to your life, you will lose it. But if you give up your life for me, you will find it. Friend, if you will surrender your own agenda, your own desires, your own will, and bring yourself as a living sacrifice to the God who loves you, to the God who sees and hears and is concerned and has come down and has stayed down in the presence of Holy Spirit, you will find the abundant life that Jesus promised. Would you bow your heads? And I just wanna give you that opportunity. While every head is bowed, if you wanna say yes to Jesus for whatever reason, for the first time or to recommit, to raise your hand and say, yes, Jesus, I give you my allegiance today. Jesus, Joshua stood before the people and he said, choose this day whom you will serve. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. And Father, we make that commitment today afresh, maybe for the first time, to say, yes, Jesus, I choose to serve you.
and to enter in to the fullness of the freedom that you have promised and purposed me for. Holy Spirit, would you come and empower us afresh to be living sacrifices, to daily yield to the Lordship of Jesus, to image the Father well, and to declare his praise that we too might lead many into freedom. In Jesus' name, amen.